And then one of the running jokes in Singapore is like when you tell people where you're from, they're like, "Oh, which part of China is that?" Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today we have another friend of mine, Alex Chow. Alex is an ambitious second-year student who plans to major in sociology and one day become an academic. He is currently working as a research assistant with the university on different projects like the arts first-year experience. As an international student, Alex talked about his observed differences between Canada and Singapore and how its politics developed over time. We also discussed our belief in sociology as a serious arts discipline and what conversation is complete without a discussion on class, race, gender and privilege. My name is Cecilia Federizon and you're listening to Visible Minorities. Yes, we are recording. <laughs> the, the first line of every <laughs> podcast. Is it working? Is it working? Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, awesome. hello. Hello. Um, so today we have Alex, one of my new friends, because we only met this year, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so Alex, why don't you give us a little overview of who you are? <laughs> oh boy, on the spot. Um... I'm Alex. I'm an international student in UBC. Um, originally from Singapore. Lived there my whole life. Just decided I should get out for a bit. And I'm here. And I'm hoping to major in sociology. And yeah, I'm just here over the summer doing jobs. miscellaneous <laughs> jobs. Uh, fun jobs, though, research jobs. Uh, mm-hmm. Stuff to my interest. Yeah. So... One of the things that surprised me when I met you was that mm. you're a little older. Yes, the the good old, old guy. <laughs> I had gray hair for a while as well, so <laughs> just fitting that into my um, uh, impression management. Yeah, ah, right. yes. yes. Love it. Good old. Good old, old Goffman. Yes, good old Goffman. Oh, yeah. So um, what's it like being an older one? And I guess, how come you came to university later than... Uh, you know, what's yeah, normal. Right. I mean, just older compared to my cohort, I guess. Um, well, so Singapore, we have compulsory uh, conscription, so military service. So we finish first because, first of all, school year is a calendar year. So we finish school at December. Okay. So when we go to university, it's the following September, right? So that yeah. like almost counts for a year. Yeah. Um, and then I did two years of national service. So when I came out of the army, it was two years. And I finished the army in December as well. So I had to wait till the following September. Um, so that accounts for like almost three years difference. So mm-hmm. I am I am like three years older than everyone in my cohort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so everyone's what? Uh, eight, well, last year. Yeah, there were 18 coming in. Like 18 slash 19. And then I was like... 20 slash 21 no 21 yeah 20 slash 21 <laughs> yeah so what was the biggest culture shock when you came to vancouver or maybe let's take a step back mm-hmm. and why choose vancouver right um well first off i guess like the push factor was just wanting to get out of singapore mm-hmm. and like i say that coming from a point that i recognize like that's pretty advantage to be able to say that yeah first of all um Mm-hmm. Um, but very much so why I wanted to do it was because just I, I kind of got tired with the Singapore education system. Growing up with it, it's a 
we like to pride ourselves on having the best education system when it comes to like math and sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, but first of all, I didn't think there was a very healthy or just just exciting scene when it came to the social sciences or humanities. Right. And there was a very rigid way of teaching, which had its pros and its cons for sure. Like it taught me how to write in a very disciplined manner, um, how to answer like very structured questions with very structured answers. Um, it helps with your flow of thinking and so on, but there's not a lot of creativity there. So like for me, I grew up like liking the social sciences a lot and humanities, but knowing that there's not much to do or I don't really want to learn in that style anymore. Yeah. And also very much so just like you can't stay in your own country and say that you're the best without actually experiencing other cultures. So. Um, for me, it was stepping outside of my comfort zone and then challenging myself in a different environment. That's kind of like the push factor to get out of Singapore. Mm-hmm. And Vancouver, honestly, was just me going like, where do I, where, what's a good place to study? I'm like, America, nah. <laughs> UK, nah. Like, Canada, that feels like America, but better. Don't, don't tell anyone I said that. <laughs> Um, but like, yeah, it, it honestly, like my 17, 18 year old mind was like, Canada is like America plus. So <laughs> I'll check that out. And literally, I should you know, I just Googled like university in Canada and UBC was the first one that popped up. Not U of T? No, surprisingly. I don't oh, know why. Interesting. But maybe it wasn't the first one, but like definitely first page. Mm. And then the, the kicker was within a week, somebody from UBC was actually in my school. Oh, like talking to us, like, you know, trying to recruit us and stuff. So I went to the session, I talked to the person and I was like, um, just like really chill. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to aim to study in this school. And then I, Mm -hmm. and then I do my, I usually make a decision and then do my research afterwards. Yeah. And then I was like, yeah, I know it's a, it's a good university, top three in Canada, like Vancouver's a nice place. Um, and very much so like for me, Vancouver is a place that's very similar to Singapore, but also very different. So like, yeah, so for like in Canada, in general, we talk a lot about the immigrant culture, the whole multiculturalism. Right. And that's very similar to Singapore. Like we always talk about how kind of like immigrants built the country type thing, but also how like, oh, it's a melting pot of cultures. And it's question, I mean, now that I'm here, it's something to question and to challenge, right? But yeah coming from an outsider's perspective, I was like, that's very similar to Singapore, but also, you know, things that are slightly different, like weather, climate, (laughs) but also um, talking about politics and how just, you know, when you're here, it's a much more liberal culture. You're celebrating a lot more, I don't want to say socialist ideas, but there's (laughs) definitely a lot more welfare uh, as compared to a more conservative Singapore where it's still very much neoliberalistic and capitalist. Mm. Yeah. But I would also say that Canada is also based on like neoliberalist and yeah. like capitalist things. Definitely. But it's coming from the place that is Singapore where we don't uh, have yeah. stuff like universal healthcare. Right. It's very, it's, it's a step in that direction. I don't want to say it's better, but it's a step in a different direction that is right. interesting to explore than here. Um, one of the things that I try to do as well, whenever I, especially when I'm in the West, now that I think about it, is I try not to look at things as progressing. 
so much so as them being different. So okay. like when I look at stuff like healthcare and say something like universal healthcare, I try not to look at it as oh we're one step behind when it comes to stuff like that. I always try to look at it as we're different mm. because very much so like. I think one of the biggest issues I have with people critiquing countries is looking at them as backwards right. or advanced. Yeah, and I choose to believe that that's not the case, and that just different things work for different countries. It's completely contextual. For sure. And yeah. just because you use this model before and you progress to a new model doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case for another country. They don't have to follow exactly what you're doing. Who's to say that like you're progressing? You could just be falling off a cliff, <laughs> right? I mean, it's not necessarily progress. I mean, yeah. So that's one of the things I try to keep an open mind about, and just to like stop myself whenever I think like, yeah, they're way more advanced. It's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, <laughs> that's really cool. I mean, like you just dove into basically all the a lot of the things that. I guess I also wanted to touch on. Yeah. But also just a lot of things that I didn't know you thought about. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but it's really cool. I mm -hmm. mean, like, that's how you come into Canada mm -hmm. with like an open mind and right. a totally different perspective. Yeah. Were you the only person who came to Canada? Like, did you know anyone else in Vancouver? No, I actually just like straight. That's that's one of the things that, like surprised me as well. Like. How did I, how, like, looking back, like, how did I decide it was a good idea? Just, like, <laughs> literally no no one coming to Canada, no no one in Canada, <laughs> and, like, my close circle of friends, no one was studying overseas. Like, everyone was studying local. Right. To be fair, they were all doing, like, engineering, and they, didn't, mm. they weren't really, like, social science people. Yeah. But still, like, how did 18-year-old me think that was a good idea? Yeah. Yeah. Were you also very political at home? I'm really not. Like, that's one of the things that I feel like I've grown a lot ever since coming here, and I'm really thankful for that, that everyone has very clear ideas of what they support and what they don't. And when I was, like, 17 and 18, one of the things that I always told myself was, like, you know, look at things from all perspectives, and I was very, very, very neutral. You know, when you're growing up and then like you're a little cocky kid and then <laughs> at some point you're, you start to mellow down like, I need to listen to everyone. And that was great, but it, I think looking back, that was like, I was super neutral as well. Yeah. And definitely not this political back home. Um, and I think I've taken that and now that I'm here and I'm interacting with so many different people, with so many different ideas, it's also taking in everything and understanding the value that everyone is contributing to a conversation, mm. but also having your own perspective on something. And I think that's a that's a step forward from from what I used to do, which is just like, yes, you're right, yes, you're right, yes, you're right, yes, you're also right. <laughs> I don't really know what I believe. I just know that everyone has value here. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, you need to you need to take a stand sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, I think I'm still a lot less political than a lot of people okay. in my in my in my group of friends at least. Yeah. Um, but definitely more so than I used to be. Yeah. Mm. So let's talk about sociology. What drew you to <sighs> choosing to major in sociology? Right. I, I think you know that like I wanted to do sociology even before I came here. I think I told you that before. Yes, that's vaguely familiar. <laughs> this this year has been a very big blur because mm -hmm. I was so busy. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, you were very busy. Yeah. 
Um, tell us, tell us wh right. why before, even right. before. It also it's it's like it all started with like one teacher, honestly. Um, when in like my final year of junior college, mm -hmm. just, like, and sometimes that's all it takes. It honestly is, and it's very amazing that that's what it takes, and I'm really thankful for it because. So it was like it's kind of like an English course, but not really English. We call it general paper, so they like teach you argumentative skills and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And my GP teacher was just very just had a very different way of looking at things and mm -hmm. I now know that's called the sociological perspective <laughs> uh, but very much he just came in and he challenged a lot of very fundamental ideas and that's like looking for the abnormal and the normal right he would mm -hmm. come in one day and be like um, there's no such thing as Asian values it's like, you guys like to write Asian values in your essay. What is Asian values? Like, <laughs> filial piety is filial piety. Like, yeah. there's no such thing as Asian values. It's just you packing it all into one big term. Right. Um, like, liberal ideas is liberal ideas. It doesn't mean Western values, right? Right. Um, it's one thing to name an idea. It's another thing to label it. Um, oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, so yeah, it's just like all the little things across yeah. the years. You suddenly come in and be like, parkour is a way to challenge structure, and I'm like, parkour is a way to run from point A to point B in the shortest, like the shortest amount of time. It's like, yes, and you're running across man-made structures in a way to rebel, and I'm like, huh, because you don't <laughs> conform to the structures built, and I'm like, huh, that's that's one that's. Very interesting, like, it's just all the little things across the year, and I'm just right. like, I wanted to learn to see the world the same way he did. Mm -hmm. That was the, that's the one thought in my mind, and then I was like, like, sir, why, how, like, what do you study? Is like, oh, he has a master's in sociology. I was like, that's really cool, like, um... Can I do anything with a, with a degree in sociology? I guess that's what everyone also asks. That honestly was, uh, it, because back way before... Like, before I was still, I still wanted to like, you know, get a degree and then go out and work. Mm -hmm. Now I think I told you, like, my plans are kind of like grad school and then go into academia because like, yeah. you, you become like disenfranchised and don't believe in capitalism anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly though. It's uh, true. Yeah, but, so yeah. But, but back then I was yeah. like, what can I do with a degree? And then it's like, you can do this. I'm like, oh, it's pretty cool. And then I'm like, I'm going to major in sociology. And I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that coming here and learning and studying sociology here has like reaffirmed um, a lot of these thoughts and dreams that I had. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I think it's really interesting that you say, um, what can you do with a sociology degree? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of sociology majors ask that mm -hmm. and for me I feel like I've had a whole different perspective on majors mm -hmm. because I think we're lucky that we found a topic or a subject that we feel very passionate about yeah. and I feel like that passion is what will lead us to our careers right. I guess and maybe that's also a very privileged thing to say because not everyone mm -hmm may have the opportunity to study something that they like yeah. or they feel pressured by some other external force. But I think what I really like about sociology is that you could apply it to anything. Yeah. If you work with people, you can apply sociology <laughs> right. to the workforce. And um, 
I don't know. I guess that's just my perspective on it. And also, I guess it's also how you market yourself. Right. Because technically, like, any arts degree, any science degree as well, like, there's no clear path on what profession or career choice you're going to end up doing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Like, like there are a lot of people that take science degrees and engineering degrees that, like, if you don't go on to grad school, you still do, like, a, I don't want to say generic, but, like... <laughs> You know, like a job that is not directly related to your major, right? Yeah. So it's very much the skills you pick up in the in 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 your course in university as well. Yeah. But like you know, if you don't know what to do with your sociology degree, like shout out, you could totally go to what can I do with my sociology degree sessions? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hosted by the Sociology Students Association this at UBC. To you, <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, from like personal experience, I know within sociology itself, like there's discussions of how are we supposed to present ourselves as sociologists? Do we do we go out and say like, look, this is my degree and this is what I can offer and like kind of like sell the sell the well, not faculty but sell the discipline yeah. as a marketable skill or do we just say look, like sociology is about a set of skills and about like academics and perspectives and like yeah. it's academia for academia's sake and like education and exactly stuff. right yeah um but I, I guess you have to find like a balance right you can't you can't just stick to one thing and then you just low-key end up as a completely i don't want to say useless but <laughs> um seen as useless degree and everyone just goes in because it's easy which you know it, it's true it's true it's very true that a lot of social yeah. sciences get the bad rap i'm going to pause for a second and try to explain why sociology is the bomb.com by giving you some old-fashioned research Sociologists Dr. Neil Guppy, Dr. Carrie Greer, Nicole Millette, and Kristen Frank from UBC recently published an article on the future lives of sociology graduates. In their research, it shows that sociology graduates are competitive with other fields when it comes to wage and employment. But the students feel dissatisfied with their degrees. They looked at the most recent Statistics Canada data from 2011 and looked at graduates whose highest degree was on sociology. What their research showed is that after graduating with a sociology degree, many students pursue occupations in education, community services, law enforcement, human resources, sales, and marketing. And 94% of these graduates say that they are satisfied or very satisfied with their job. So why isn't sociology taken so seriously when our graduates are kicking ass in the real world? And so they stress the importance of supporting and giving opportunities to students in the discipline. It's honestly one of the things, like, before I came in, I thought I want to do sociology and being the big nerd I was, I was like, I want to do something with sociology, like, I'm a double major, double honors, like, that's, yeah. that's ridiculous. Double honors, oh! <laughs> that's ridiculous. Ambitious! I, I'm not gonna do that. But, like, you know, I was like, what should I do for my second one? I want to do psychology, because my sister does psychology, and she, she, like, tells me about a lot of cool stuff. Right. But... This is a personal opinion, but I feel like psychology is one of the biggest disciplines where that thing has been overly... It's it's just seen by the general public too much as something that everyone does and it's 
not that useful. Yeah. It's, I, I believe get that it's the perception biggest, too. I believe it's the biggest discipline in the arts. It's either psychology or poli sci. Right. Yeah. And I guess we're talking about UBC only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's very often like, oh, they're doing psychology, like, because it's easy kind mm. of thing, right? Yeah. And, and that's one of the things I actually really dislike when people try to come over and tell me, like, oh, art is easy. That's, that's like a personal experience that really, really irked me was um, I had a friend who I was trying to console like about their about their grades and they were in science. Right. And then I was like, oh yeah, you know, like it's 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 okay, you'll be fine. Like you do you work harder, you get like better grades. And then like I think at that point they knew that I was having good grades in in like first year arts. And then they're like, yeah, but that's because you're in arts. And I took Ooh. so much offense to that. I it think was, it's also because like you bad. actually do put in a lot exactly, of work right? into like, it. The bell curve exists in every faculty. Like, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, so yeah. I think a lot of, I don't know why. Maybe it's because arts is a feminized thing mm -hmm. that people don't take seriously. Right. And I think... Maybe that's why we have people who think it's so easy. It's funny you say feminized because that person like is a self-declared feminist. So it's like, hmm. I don't know. I, I think it's more just a perception thing and it might just have been a spur of the moment kind of thing. Right. But it just, it just goes to show that it's a very underlying sentiment. Yeah. Um, and I always wonder how we could, you know, like get that reputation of arts back because like if you look at it like give it like a thousand years ago like in ancient greece exactly philosophy. thousands of years ago not a thousand but like philosophy yeah. and the arts were what people aspired to do like yeah. science and engineering is like the like the <laughs> basic stuff and it over the years i guess like science and tech has caught up and it's brought us huge improvements in our lives and I guess in a way that's why perception has changed to like the STEM fields. And there's complete there's nothing wrong with that. But why do we always need to have like a one is better than the other thing? Like, why can't we just have like an equal partnership where very much so STEM is building stuff for us to use, but also we have the arts to tell us how to use it. Yeah. Um, and I guess just to clarify for anyone who doesn't know, STEM is the science, yeah. technology, engineering, engineering and mathematics. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Ugh. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of bureaucracy within the university itself mm -hmm. as well, and yeah. like again, funding for the arts. Maybe that's one right. of the reasons why we're not taken as seriously mm -hmm. is because we don't have the resources to become one of. Are we the top social? No, I don't think we're the top social I, science I so. university, but to have a really good in depth like. Mm -hmm. But then it's chicken, it. chicken or egg problem, right? Like, right. Which, which came first, perspective or resources. Yeah, that's um, true. And that's where, I guess, very much like selling the degree or the, the arts as a very marketable thing comes in. And I think, maybe I'm optimistic, but give it a couple decades or a couple hundred years where we start shifting back towards a priority in arts, which would happen from a tech revolution coming up from, say, AI, like something like AI? artificial intelligence, okay, yeah. where we're shifting towards um, oh. like a technological revolution. Yeah. 
after that, what we're going to need are people to figure out what to do with the tech. I think in a couple of decades, when we have issues like recently, there's been issues about how like robotics and AI is going to replace a lot of manufacturing jobs. And we need to talk about basic income. We need to talk about stuff like that. That's when the arts comes in and says like, look, we need to do this and that and that. And I think once we come to that point of automation, STEM might take a small step back and then the arts gets to shine again. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice to think about the world in simple terms, like STEM takes a step back and then arts takes a step forward. <laughs> yeah. But it's not as black and white as that, but a person can dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so we can take a little break mm-hmm. and then we'll come back. Yeah. All right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, so um, since you're an international student, have you ever had any experiences where you felt like you were being exoticized because you weren't from Canada or I guess a North American? Right. Country? Yeah, so I think one of the big issues coming from Singapore anyway is, but first I need to say like, in general, no, just because UBC is a very international place. Right, yeah. Um, and I'm fortunate to be interacting with people mostly in UBC. I spend so much time on campus. Yeah. So, like, my experiences are coming from a very international place in a fairly international city, in a very, in like a pretty international country as well. Mm-hmm. But I know there are pockets for sure in Canada where that would not be the case. There are there are patches where it's there are you know regions in Canada where there's ethnic divides read like geographically like there are like ethnic enclaves living together so to right. speak right yeah 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 um, yeah but coming from an international perspective not that much in a very international school but very much from a, the one of the big things coming from Singapore is first of all Singapore is a really small country um, a lot of people don't know where it's from sometimes when I speak to people. Let's pause again. As Alex said that, some of you might have also been laughing and playing along, but didn't actually know where Singapore is. Don't worry, I'll keep it a secret between us. Anyway, here's a brief overview of Singapore's history, as told from a first-generation Canadian girl. Singapore is one of the world's few city-states, located in Southeast Asia. Nicknamed the Little Red Dot because that's how it looks like on a map. You can locate it in between Malaysia and the Indonesian islands. Singapore was once controlled and owned by the British in the 1800s and was used as a trading post by the East India Trading Company at this time. But since 1965, Singapore managed to gain independence and became self-governing. Despite its close distance to Malaysia, Singapore is uniquely different in terms of politics and culture. Like Malaysia, it has three main races, Chinese, Indian, and Malay. But in Singapore, it is actually the Chinese who make up an overwhelming majority, making up 76.2% of the population, compared to 15% Malays and 7.4% Indians. So for me, one of the big issues coming to um, Canada, a North American country, and the interactions is trying to understand 
whether or not my interaction with someone, say, uh, a, white, a white person, whether what I'm feeling of, like, issues of white superiority or whatever, are they legitimate concerns? Are they truly treating me that way? Or is it just my own insecurities? Um, but at the same time, like, when you take a step back and you think, like, okay, maybe it's my own insecurities, but then you stop and think, why do those insecurities exist? Is it a part of a larger issue? Which is one of the things we learned, right? About whether the personal experience is part of a larger phenomenon. Yeah. And very much so, from Singapore, at least I can say, is that the notion of Eurocentrism is very much there. I mean, Singapore is a former British colony. It's right. interesting because unlike some of the other countries that were former colonies, we don't really reject our formal colonial masters, you know, mm-hmm. Thomas, mm-hmm. but we kind of celebrate it. Like, I came from a school called Raffles Institution, named after Sir Stanford Raffles, which is the founder of Singapore, like the British guy that came to Singapore <laughs> and then basically bought the country or bought the island from the guy that was ruling it and then turned it into a trading port for the British Indies trading company. Yeah. Yeah. So, but when we gained independence, we didn't fully reject it, but we didn't like reject our past, but to celebrate it very much because it's a large part of us or a large part of our history and it helped with our development very much. What came along with that is the notion of like white superiority to an extent, even though they're not the majority race there or anything. Um, One of the big things is in Singapore, you get stories of how people think uh, white people are smarter or they're just more attractive or uh, one of the classic Singapore movies, what was it called? Uh, Money Not Enough. Yeah, it's funny English bad grammar jokes. Um, <laughs> but one of the running, one of the big jokes in there, and I remember this from the movie, was um, there's basically a guy who's a marketing like assistant or something and then he pitches an idea and then like the boss just hates it and then like a white, they, 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 you just hire a white guy and the white guy pitches the exact same idea and the boss loves it. <laughs> like that's, that's one of the jokes and it's reflective of the society. Like honestly, people find like expats really attractive and they're like, I only date white guys kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And, but I always like, like personally to me, the problem with stuff like race is always an intersection with class. Um, it's always an issue of, of you see that race is attractive because it's seen as a higher class. But if you were to take, say, like your everyday white person or even a white person that's going through a lot of issues in their life, like poverty or someone of so-called working class, lower class, that like impression of them being superior gets taken away. So to right. me, it's always an issue of class before race, because for me, it's always an issue with, I don't want to say capitalist structure or whatnot, but I always look at problems with race from a class perspective. We see them as better because they are of the better class, not because of their race inherently. Um, and I like to think that if we strip away all that class, and this sounds very... Stripping away class sounds very um, communist, but <laughs> if we strip that all away, I think when we take it bare bones, honestly, you're, you're fighting the same fight. Like, that's the issue with 
What do you mean by fighting the same fight? I think that's one of the things that's like in the stuck, stuck in like the back of my head that the issues with lower class, uh, working class white people and why they follow like the Trump movement and so on and so forth. And we're trying to talk about how at the end of the day, like their resentment towards immigrant workers and resentment towards other race is misguided and unfounded because the thing that's stopping them from progressing say the social ladder or like or like progressing in terms of class is not people beside them but the people above them that's stopping them from going up and if you strip that all away you realize that we're all in the same boat <laughs> like we were talking about um Arlie Hochschild's book uh, uh, right the one the one the about running the, what's it on the run? No, not on the run. It's the the, the more recent one where she interviews people. Oh no, that was people, Alice Goffman. The one where she interviews people from the Tea Party, uh, well, not Tea Party, but supporters of the Tea Party, and right. try to understand their perspective of what they're like, why why they would support something like that. And she interviewed a bunch of people trying to get their perspective, and eventually she came up with this metaphor, which she brought back to them, and then she spoke to them. And then it's like, yes, this is exactly what I feel. And she comes up with this metaphor of a, sorry, uh, a mountain. And imagine like they're in a single file going up the mountain. And then the American dream promises them that they will reach the peak of the mountain. Right. Eventually. And then it's a long line. And then it's been a tiring journey. And then they see people from the back of different races being plucked and pulled forward in front of them. And that's why that is affirmative action to them. Like, yeah. I was promised to get up the mountain and then I'm seeing people from behind me being plucked and then going in front of me, like cutting my line kind of thing. Yeah. But what they don't understand is like, people at the back have been at the back because they've been oppressed and they're stuck yeah. in the back and they're being pulled forward. They might have more baggage that they're carrying, but also, I think they don't understand to look if you take a bigger step back and this is like my take on it is that you don't realize that even though he's being plucked and put in front of you you guys are both still equally far away from the top of the mountain right. because the real issue is not people from the back cutting in front of you it's the fact that there's like 10 guys at the top of the mountain and they're like making sure that nobody gets up top right and like that's the to me, that's the that's the problem with arguments about race per se. For me, it's always class first, then race. Um, that's very interesting. Yeah, that's the perspective I take, and I, like, there's more for me to learn for sure. But I always take it class first, then race. There's an intersection of class and race for sure, where you find that um, minorities are disproportionately represented in the lower class. But in the lower class itself, I think all that the notions of in the lower class itself all notions of race get thrown on the table there's no there's no more fight within yourselves like stop yeah. trying to like that's that's just what people in the upper class want you to do just keep fighting amongst yourselves right. and you'll never see what the real problem is so, so. i guess something that kind of maybe i'm not sure if i disagree completely mm -hmm. with is your perspective on like class and race mm -hmm. being I guess two intersections yep. um, my question is probably 
what are what do you think about the intersections with gender and with sexuality right. and with ability mm-hmm. and age and all that stuff? Um, like that's that's definitely like another thing to look at for sure. But like if we take say say we take gender for a case, right? And let's say let's let's look at the glass ceiling for example. Um, and we replace race with gender in this argument, and we talk about class and gender. So the whole issue here is, once again, at the top, you have issues of people preventing women from breaking the glass ceiling, so to speak, how like, out of a hundred top CEOs, there's like two women, for mm-hmm. example. Um, but the whole issue here is that the people at the top of like people at the top are preventing others from coming up to the top not necessarily because of gender immediately it's because they're retaining their position of class at the top for people that are similar to them which historically have been white cisgender male mm-hmm. but the whole issue is not about at least from my perspective, it's not that it's not immediately a race or gender issue. It's about maintaining that class for all these qualities, right. but also making sure every other category is at the bottom, including other white cisgender male that do not fit their criteria of class. So okay. there's also like your general middle class white cisgender male or working class white cisgender male that is taught to work this amount and eventually you'll get to the top but in reality it's just the same guys at the top just holding that circle right i guess i i totally get your point Mm -hmm. i think what i'm kind of hesitant about is that when we put a certain kind of positionality or maybe not positionality but What's the word? Like, what isms? Like, classes and racism Mm -hmm. and, like, uh, sexism and ageism. If we put one as the major thing, it could be very problematic. That's totally totally a big problem because, like, everybody goes, like, oh, yeah, I solved the the problem of everything. It's that one criteria in the world, right? And that's definitely a big issue that, that, that we all struggle with. And... I guess like over the years I've tried to distance like I would, like earlier I was talking about how like I try to take different perspectives yeah. and try to take one stand and like for me I think if I had to take one point of view it's class first like for sure this it's like whenever people go like oh I figured out the one reason why Trump won the election like no you didn't because there isn't one reason but right. Everybody comes up with one reason, and then we finally have a cohesive picture. I think like it's it's good to always keep other perspectives in mind, but each person eventually comes up with one thing that they relate most with, and they have the most interest with, and they feel the most strongly for. And then we come together, and then we talk about these issues because one person is not going to be able to take into account every single factor. Yeah, and you can take into multiple. Um, and that's great, but you can also take one and bring it to the table and then talk to others about it. And I think that's the, I think that's the best way to do it, honestly. Um, 
because in my time talking to a lot of different people, everyone has a different like one factor, and knowing that that one factor is important to you is good, but it's also important to take that one factor and talk to other people and just have a good healthy discussion over. Okay, now that we all know what's wrong with that one problem, how do we create a solution that solves the larger issue together? Right. Now that we all have a specific topic, it's kind of like a group discussion and like we <laughs> hop again and like yeah. everyone talks. So, and I guess so, yeah. so for you, it sounds like class is like the main thing and your main focus. Yeah, it's just one of the things that's been like. Bugging me in the past year, whenever I hear a lot of discussions over race or gender or sexuality, it always comes back to class to me. Which I could be wrong, but to me that would be the research focus that I think I might want to go into. Right. I guess what I'm hearing from you is that class is one of the main things that you should focus on and. Uh, I told you a little bit earlier that I'm not too sure if I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Is it because when we talk about gender and race, there's a lot of discussion about those two issues, I guess. But then class gets lost in the discussion as well. Right. Is that kind of what you're trying to get at? Right. Yeah. So for me, like, obviously, this is coming from still a very fresh and not too many years or not too much time spent in the discipline itself. Yeah. Taking one intro to sociology. <laughs> but for me, it's going in, and a lot of the things every time we discuss issues of inequality, to me, it always comes back to class. When I go into discussions and to, with friends or or just having you know topics to talk about, and we go into issues of race or issues of gender or sexuality, it always seems to come back to class for me because. We talk about, say, racial inequality, and it always seems like the struggle within, say, the middle class or the lower class, and you're all fighting this fight that is being dictated by people in the upper class that mm-hmm. are defining the boundaries of what you can or can't do. It seems to me like the inequality is being crafted and controlled by people in the upper class, which, to to you know, sound somewhat Marxist, if you strip away that power and you strip away that class. And you strip away the ability to define what you can or can't do. It seems like that inequality would be—I wouldn't say magically solved, but optimistically, it seems like the best way to fix it. Like it would level the playing exactly. field. Exactly, and sometimes it very much also feels like when we talk about issues of gender and sexuality and race, it's one thing to have that type of equality within classes, right? We talk about say. Um, if we talk about issues of race and how uh, minorities are disproportionately represented in lower class, when we're trying to solve that problem is we're trying to level the playing field and we're trying to remove that class division that seems to be constructed by race. So to me, it's like the practical solution that you want is to fix that class issue. So to me, it comes back to the class issue. Okay. Yeah. So then, once class is fixed, then we can fix a bunch of different issues. Is that what you're trying to say? It's a bit of both. It's like if we fix class issues, then we can fix all these, diff- all these other issues. But also, I mean, to say other issues is kind of you know disingenuous. But yeah. also, 
if we're fixing racism, for example, if we're fi- if we're fixing a race uh, racial inequality, we're also looking for a fixing in the class system because racial inequality is what what the inequality we're talking about is between races. Why do we think there's an inequality between races? Because it seems that there's a class difference between the races. Yes. So so to me, that's the that's the cyclical relationship that everything seems to go. To have a cyclical relationship with class. Yeah, and I guess no. I I think I do agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's where more I'm coming from is mm-hmm. that class, race, gender, sexuality are all related. In one, they're all related mm-hmm. cyclically at the same time. Right. So you said that because of you know racial differences, mm-hmm. the certain types of races are in the lower class. Right. But then also when you add in, you know, certain racialized women mm-hmm. are more likely to be in the right. lower class. Yeah. So I guess my point, or I guess my point of view would be that, yes, class is important, but I'm very hesitant to say that it just boils down to one type right. of um, issue, <laughs> one type of... Discrimination. I like that. That it all boils down to one discrimination. Um, because it might also end up in like this kind of oppression war mm-hmm. and like who's being more oppressed. Right. And that can also be very dangerous because to me, I feel like we all, no matter what kind of oppression we feel, mm-hmm. we should all work together. Right, exactly. To fight, you know, those like white, um, middle class, middle class, upper middle class. Mm-hmm men who right. are in control of that like peak of the mountain right 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 see that's that's the thing for sure that's why i find that like when we talk about issues with race or gender it's an issue that we're all fighting on like a middle class lower class level when it should be an issue of everyone working together mm-hmm. to deal with the upper class that's primarily filled by these stereotypical white cisgender male yeah um that to me is it it feels like one of those like you know everybody comes together and then they solve the problem together and then you stop and you wonder why that isn't happening and they're fighting all these small battles everywhere yeah of things that i don't want to say are less important because definitely when you're fighting for something there's a reason for it and that's definitely coming from personal experience Mm -hmm. but we know from like the micro level and the macro level things are different like yeah. The micro doesn't necessarily translate to the macro every time. Right. And the macro might not even be the same as the micro in any form. So to me, it's like looking past a lot of that and then going to deal with a class issue, class struggle, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest reason I want to say um, why to me class is the big thing is like to be very honest for a moment is that... Um, I think everyone, when they go into sociology with passion, they have a personal experience that they yeah. want to deal with. Um, for I know I've spoken to so many different sociologists that they all have personal experiences. So I've seen mar- minority women that have like a very big interest in the intersection of race and gender. I've seen um, gay men that have issues with sexuality. And very often that is the case of a personal interest and it would be disingenuous to say that you don't have a vested interest in what you believe in. So 
But very often for myself coming in as a straight male, you also, it would be disingenuous to say like, I'm fighting for all this when you don't necessarily have a personal connection to it. Right. So to me, the issue is that my battle is with class. Yeah. I'm not suffering these discrimination, but it's not that I'm neglecting it. I recognize all these problems, but I cannot have a personal connection with it. And for me, my battle is with class to fix all these other issues as well. So like, my focus is on this, and your focus is on that, and let's fight the good fight and then come together and solve it together. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think like, if I were to go into research or on race or on gender, not having that personal connection or having that personal experience is going to be limiting for me. Because very, like what I was saying earlier, like it's all these small battles that come together and they're all important in their own right because the people fighting those battles have their personal experiences. But not being able to feel those things and not being able to experience it firsthand, it would be disingenuous for me to fight it with you. In mm -hmm. that sense, mm -hmm. like I will stand with you, but I can't lead it. I can't. Yeah. I can't be the person there. Like, right. so that to me is the number one reason why for me I have to go to an issue with class, and that's something I can understand better and how to deal with and research and combat, and then we come together and then we, you know, fix that again. That yeah. Was, yeah. No, it was a very good explanation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's. That's like, that's one of the things like people look at the sociologist like discipline and they're like, it's very feminized because there's a lot of women because that's yeah. because women have that personal experience. They have that personal connection to the issue. It's not disingenuine at yeah. all. It's that they have those experiences that for us, sometimes as outsiders, we can't understand as a male, I can't fully understand oppression on a, on a gender level, right? Like. There are issues with, say, non-binary genders. Mm -hmm. And for me, I can't understand why... I can't understand on a personal level why it's so important. But I know it's important for some people because they have that personal experience. Mm -hmm. And for them to fight that fight is their fight. Yeah. I'm there to help them, but I'm there to help them in a field that I can understand. Yeah. So that, to me, is... The, 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 the honest perspective of right. why it's hard to go in to a to to like a racial level or a or a or a sexuality level or a gender level. Yeah. And I guess also where you come from you're one of the racial majorities, yes. right? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. Alright, so we can take another break. It's weird. I was listening to another podcast, mm -hmm. and there it was two guys, right. two people of color, and they're talking about how they find it weird when dudes wear this is what a feminist looks like, mm -hmm. because it's like, do you as a guy have the right to call yourself feminist? Right. And then to them, their perspective is that um, if they they can't really say that they are mm -hmm. feminist, but you know they try. To be a feminist, but they don't just—they can't get that label right. unless, like, another feminist person who is from the movement mm -hmm. can, like, say that you're an ally to the right. feminist movement. Yeah, like I like to get your thoughts on that because, like, it's one of those things where, what say say 
exactly what you think. Like, how would you feel if it was two dudes on a podcast talking about how they're feminists, even though they've never experienced discrimination on a gender level yeah. on, in their lives, right? Like, it's like, it doesn't feel like a genuine fight to you, I'm assuming. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's, what's good to hear is that, you know, oh, cool, there are allies mm-hmm. who are, you know, not exactly. women, which is great, but they can't be the voice of the feminist movement. Yeah, I'm like nodding my head, <laughs> and I forgot it's a podcast, and no one can actually see that. But yeah, exactly. Like, it's good to know they're allies, but they're not supposed to be the yeah. voice of the movement. That's yeah, that's the best way to put it. I think mm-hmm. um, you can cut out like the whole 15 minutes of, <laughs> of me rambling and like just say. That. But I think that's a really good point and a good, mm-hmm. I guess, representation of that. Like how we get back to this conclusion. I right. Guess. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people are also thinking the same thing mm-hmm. and like trying to work out their own thoughts and their own exactly. politics at the same time. So I think like it's, it's been great, like just talking about all this stuff, like gets the thoughts organized in my head as yeah. well. Like it's a yeah. lot of incoherent rambling, but like slowly it gets a little bit. But harder. you know what? I don't actually hear a lot of that perspective from a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I I can only name one other person who's actually said like okay i need to step back because it's not my place exactly. but i'm a supporter yeah and i think a lot of i guess my guy friends mm-hmm. who do you know support gender equality right. and like let's kill racism <laughs> kind of stuff um like they're supporters of it but then also they don't recognize the kind of privilege they have exactly. when talking about that stuff and when is that right time to step back and let people from that um, who are facing this discrimination to step forward and to talk about it. Right. So, yeah, you're one of the few who actually right. like said something yeah. along that lines. Very often, like one of the issues I have with um, people that call themselves feminists or or, or like they want to end racial discrimination is that very often what they do instead, and this is like, I don't know if it's controversial or like offensive, is that they take the knowledge that they have privilege as a way to feel better about themselves than other people. And this is oh, definitely, totally this get is definitely that. not the case of everyone for sure. Yeah. But like recognizing privilege is one step. The next step is elevating others to, to get rid of their privilege. It's not to be like, using that privilege and then putting yourself above other people that have privilege. Yeah. Because it feels that it feels like that's what you're doing when you just be like, oh my god, do you not realize how terrible you sound when you are so insensitive and blah 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 to other people and just like calling them names and saying that they're stupid and that they're offensive without actually trying to educate those people. Like we kinda like veered off track but like bringing back to the idea of being a bystander and a supporter is about me recognizing like I've learned all these things about privilege. Now my job is to educate others and help others in ways that I can and not like step into your movement and tell you like this is what you should be doing or or try to be the voice of your movement because it's not a personal experience that I relate, it's not a discrimination that I experience. I'm here to help you in any way that I can but I can't be the person like at the front of it right yeah so exactly (laughs) um and i definitely cannot 
stand aside and say, I have privilege, I am better, but not, not that, but I have privilege and I recognize it and that makes me better than other people who have privilege <laughs> and don't recognize it. Yeah. That's the big, the, that's the big problem. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't take the next step forward, mm -hmm. which is like taking action into exactly. like putting action into what, into your words. Is mm -hmm. that the saying? Something like that. Putting your words into action. action. Yes. <laughs> that, yeah. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. That's it for my conversation with Alex. But there's one more thing I need to ask. If you haven't caught on yet, at the end of every episode, I ask my friends what piece of media they've recently read, watched, or listened to that they would recommend to others. Since I started this podcast by thinking of ways to challenge mainstream media's representation of certain groups, I wonder what my friends say is a good piece of media that says something positive about us minorities. So, what did Alex say? There's a big, like, big deal happening in Singapore a couple weeks back mm -hmm. that where a Indian actor that he went for a audition. First of all, it said like the casting role was Malay slash Indian. So first of all, it's like token minority. They didn't right. really care if you're Malay or Indian so long as you're a minority. Mm -hmm. And then when he was there, he was told to do the audition and. He, when he did the audition in a, like, what he called a, like, a basic Singaporean accent, the casting director told him to do it in an Indian accent and to, quote-unquote, make it funny. So he took a lot of offense to it, and he went online with it, and he talked about how it kind of made him feel disgusted that his race is being reduced to just an accent right. and caricaturized to that extent and to feel like a foreigner in his own country. People disagree with him and then be like... Um, you know, you're an actor, that's supposed to be what you're supposed to be doing. And very often you find people disagreeing with him being of the majority Chinese race. Yes. And then you have all the arguments of how, like, check your privilege, like, you don't understand. Just because you don't relate doesn't mean this is not a real uh, incident. And then it just started, like, the discussion kept growing and then it became, look, this is not just about the audition, it's about it being symbolic of a bigger issue of you know, structural discrimination and structural institutionalized racism yeah. and how we're socialized to grow up to think that like just an accent is funny because you know they're a minority or so like they don't sound like you because you're the majority so like they're funny kind of thing, right? Yeah. And that wraps up this episode of Visible Minorities. Thank you to Alex for talking with me today. Special thanks to Alida Ibrahim and Harry Bentley Bales for their research help. And thank you to Amon Gosh for reviewing the script. That's the end of this podcast binge. If you actually did binge it. If you liked listening to this conversation and the previous two, it's not the end. You can catch weekly episodes on Wednesdays. So until then, we'll talk soon.